You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, this was supposed to be my last Sunday here, but uh, Gil asked if I would take one, one more Sunday, so I'll be here next week as well, So, um, which obligates no one to come back. <laughs> but, you know, just so you know. Um, that gives me one more story, so we'll we'll cover the Magi next week, which is we'll we'll see if we can answer why God used a star to communicate to the Magi and see what that has anything to do with Herod. That's that's going to be the question. Um, so we've been looking at the beginning chapters of Matthew. We talked about Matthew the first story last week, which is the genealogy. Uh, which is the record of how God prepared Israel for the coming of Messiah over many, many centuries through uh, direct intervention a few times. That wasn't the norm, but there were times of God's direct intervention. And uh, through Israel's many, many failures, the the most believable part of the Gospels (laughs) is the part that I relate to the most, which is human failure. And uh, though God gave them so many opportunities and tried to equip them with his law uh, to govern themselves and uh, at times with direct intervention to save them and preserve them despite themselves, that through all these twists and turns, God never took his hands off the steering wheel and was always moving them, developing them, preparing them for the coming of Messiah. And in part, one of the major lessons was that God did so many things to help them, and they still couldn't self-govern. They still failed. Uh, And that's why we come to story number two, uh, where we discover that the only solution to human, the failures of human self-governance is for God himself to become human and to take the reins of the state personally and to govern us. And uh, though the birth of Jesus was just the beginning of that, the the consummation, of course, is yet in the future, as some events we'll cover next week indicate. Uh, So we'll read chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, I think it's always good. If you have a phone even, you can at least pull out a digital Bible and uh, follow along. I think it's helpful because we're going to be turning to Isaiah at some point and looking more closely at that. Uh, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place, this is chapter 1, verse 18, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And the husband, uh, excuse me, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place, or has taken place, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So just to uh, 
minor things, not minor, but uh, two things to consider right away. The first is this quote in verses 22 and 23, the quote from Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall conceive. It's not clear in the original language whether the angel is still talking to Joseph in the dream or whether this is Matthew summarizing retroactively what's happened. And there's different opinions about it, and I don't take a dogmatic one. Uh, I think it makes perfectly good sense that the angel keeps on talking. And uh, yet I wouldn't find fault with somebody who said, no, this is just Matthew summing it up. Either way, it's still provided as an explanation. Uh, And then secondly, uh, the oddity, which I mentioned last week, I think, that the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, and yet Matthew claims it fulfills a prediction where Messiah would be called, not Jesus, but Emmanuel. How, how could that even work together? Uh, so we'll be talking about trying to resolve that. I just put it out there as a question. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's, uh, I find the hardest part about reading scripture or listening to the word is, is thinking while I'm listening, <laughs> or at least thinking about what I'm reading and listening to rather than about a thousand other things. And it's often not the deep things that we need to worry so much about. It's the things that the writer is trying to say obviously that we should focus on. In this case, it's an obvious thing. It's, I'm hardly reading deeply into it to ask a very simple question. Why, are, why does this quotation or how does it fulfill this naming? when the name is different. Wouldn't it have been easier if the angel just said, call him Emmanuel? And then it just makes sense. Uh, So how does that come to be? So that's sort of uh, where where we are, uh, or what we'll be looking at as as we move along. Um, All right, so we know then that uh, God himself, this is the the record, I guess you would say, of God himself becoming a human. Of that, Matthew's pretty clear. Not just in the first story, but as you read through his whole gospel, it's quite clear. He means for us to understand that this is God himself becoming man, becoming human, so that as a son of David, he might uh, uh, save and and, uh, rule uh, the people, restore Israel. Uh, But before you get there, you have this moral quandary. It's an interesting detail in the story, isn't it, that it begins with a moral quandary that Joseph faced. And Matthew's interested, presumably, in the moral quandary because of the explanation, ultimately, that's provided for it. Now, uh, we all know that uh, it's not uncommon, is it, in our world, that uh, somebody end up pregnant before marriage. That's not totally unheard of, is it? (laughs) Uh, Between couples. So... Uh, we have ways we sort of think of how people deal with it, but those are somewhat different from the way people would have dealt with it in Joseph's day, in Joseph's culture. In his world, uh, for him to discover uh, that Mary was pregnant. Now, of course, we know that Luke tells us that Gabriel visited Mary and she had her story of what was behind this. Uh, I think we can cut Joseph some slack, can we not? That he didn't immediately believe this story? 
<laughs> given the options, she was immoral, or the other option, what Gabriel told her, and Gabriel visited her, we couldn't blame him anyway for having some doubts that her version of events was to be taken seriously. People still view the story that way, do they not? So Joseph, being a righteous Jew, and people knew he was a righteous Jew, you don't have to be even be that righteous in his culture to see the problem. She's with child. So option one is the child is yours. That, of course, could happen. If that happened under the law, you were obligated to marry her then, of course. And he would have to marry her. Probably the wedding might be arranged rather quickly <laughs> so as to avoid the public stain. Were they really all that much more righteous than we are in their day in those respects? I'm sure there was a parent or two saying we could pull off the wedding very soon if we need to. But then you have the other option, which is Joseph's scenario, which is the child, he knows the child, is not his because he has not been with Mary in that way. And he knows this. Now what are his options? Well, his options are pretty limited. <laughs> He's going to cut off the engagement, which was to divorce in their day. Um, so that would be the, if I may say, the easy route, right? Because after all, he knows he's not the father. But instead, the story is Joseph actually married Mary, knowing that the child wasn't his. And what is the explanation he gives? Well, an angel visited him in a dream and told him that uh, this child was going to be the Messiah. Now, as far as inventions go for covering problems, I don't think of that as a very plausible invention. Uh, I think it's far more likely that Joseph either would have divorced Mary or if the child really was his, which is the way most modern skeptics would tend to think, right? It was probably his child. I mean, if it wasn't his child, it's very unlikely he would go ahead with the marriage. So it's probably his child. So what does he do? He marries her. And then there's this whole story about an angel visiting them in the dream and this is going to be Messiah. Uh, that just doesn't strike me as very plausible. I mean, as far as inventions go, it would be far easier to get married quickly. And it's worth noting later in Matthew when Jesus visits Nazareth, also true in Luke when he visits Nazareth, that though people are questioning him, they say, who, who is this? Isn't this just the son of Joseph and Mary and so on? There's no indication of scandal surrounding their, his life or his marriage, the, the marriage of his parents. There's... You would think, as people were questioning Jesus and who he really was, given all the claims he was making, that somebody in the synagogue in Nazareth would have mentioned the scandal. So the impression to me, at least the impression Matthew leaves, whether that's the whole story or not, we can't confirm, but the impression he leaves is that what happened with Jesus' birth never became a scandal. And in fact, isn't that in part why the angel appears to Joseph? because it wouldn't have been uh, beneficial to the future preaching of the gospel that there was a moral scandal surrounding his birth. So it appears as though that was never known 
Um, so uh, that anyway seems to be Matthew's interest in telling us about the moral uh, quandary. Uh, and then we get to the naming. And the naming, uh, as we said, reveals both the, uh, the uh, true identity of this child as well as the significance. What does it mean? What God is, what is God up to? So it's not just his identity, it is that, that he is God become human, but what is God up to? What's the point? And though, as we already have noticed, having read the genealogy and then coming to this story, the obvious point is that this is the solution to the problem of the failure of all those kings who had been sons of David, and the failure of David himself. That God had to promise to David, way back in the books of Samuel, he promised, didn't he, in 2 Samuel, that David would have a son whose kingdom would never end. So it was the failure that led then to this. Uh, But in order to get at the heart of it, we have to pay attention then to the meaning of the names. And here we encounter something even uh, a little bit interesting on the sort of the language side of things, but you'll forgive me for being someone who reads these languages and then finding a significant point or two out of the languages. <laughs> um, and that is this, that when uh, the account is given that you shall call his name Jesus in verse 21, there is no translation provided for what the name Jesus actually signifies. Now, there's a statement, he shall save his people from their sins, but then Matthew doesn't tell us which he could have. Matthew could here have put a parenthesis in and said to us, now, the name Yahweh saves, or excuse me, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Okay, Jehovah saves. Uh, That would have been very helpful. (laughs) But he doesn't do that. But then when he goes on to provide the words that God gave to Ahaz, King Ahaz, through um, uh, Isaiah, and he records the name Emmanuel, there he does add a translation of the name Emmanuel. God is with us. So it's hard to make sense of that, isn't it? The common view is that Matthew, I guess, assumes his readers didn't know Hebrew, and therefore he had to provide the translation of the name Emmanuel. God is with us. But then why doesn't he provide the translation of the name Joshua, or Jesus. We know it's Joshua, right? It's the same name as Joshua. Why doesn't he provide that translation? And then later, at the end of chapter 2, when Jesus moves, his parents move to Nazareth to try and hide away, they're hiding from uh, the descendants of Herod, the kings. They're afraid, naturally afraid, understandably afraid. And they go and resettle in Nazareth to hide out. And then we're told that this fulfilled what the prophets had said, that he shall be called a Nazarene. And there again, Matthew provides no translation (laughs) for what this name Nazarene means, even though there's no statement in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Hmm, head scratchers, aren't they? Um, Well, I will probably conclude that myself, that uh, Matthew isn't, is actually assuming that his readers, though reading in Greek, would be familiar with the Hebrew enough to know some of these subtleties. And then I wouldn't be out on a limb on that because most of the commentators who study Matthew conclude that Matthew has written his gospel for, in fact, Jews. It's the most common interpretation across history. Matthew wrote his gospel for Jews. And, of course, popular names like 
Emmanuel, certainly Emmanuel from Isaiah, and Joshua and so on would have been familiar names, what they meant. So there was no need to translate them. The reason then, the question is then, why does he highlight the translation of Emmanuel? If he doesn't need to, why does he highlight it? Well, I suppose for that, because he wants to highlight it. That's it. Not because they don't know it, but because he wants to emphasize it. And we'll come back to why uh, he might emphasize it in, as we go through Isaiah for a few minutes. But let's just note what they mean. Yahweh, again, is the name Joshua. Well, you know what Joshua did. He fulfilled the meaning of his name. Uh, let me fill you in uh, on the contours of the story. They're very short. Moses valiantly led Israel with great spiritual courage and sacrifice. You know what it's like to lead real people, don't you? It's not very fun. It's hard enough leading a family or a small business, but leading the whole nation? Would never wish that upon myself. So, Moses, as you all know, failed. He failed. And in fact, as Israel came to the very shores of the Promised Land, God refused to let Moses lead them in because of his disobedience. He failed. But what Moses failed to do, Joshua was sent to finish. That's the story, isn't it? Because Yahweh saves and Joshua delivered them into the promised land. That's what Joshua means. And the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Joshua. Why? Because he shall save his people. Not just from their political enemies, but from their spiritual enemies, from sin itself. So the great story of Joshua is a story of salvation. Israel needs to be saved from their sins. But then David did that, didn't he? The root of the, of the house of David, you know? Jesus is an heir of David's throne. Didn't David save Israel? I mean, they were about to be destroyed by the Philistines. And David stood out in front of the Israelite army and he fought. And all the Philistines were like NBA players, huge, huge people. And David came out there and he slew the giant Goliath and thereby he saved Israel and was known as the Deliverer, the Savior. But then that's not all David did. If we come to the name Emmanuel, where does that come from? Well, we'll read it in just a minute, but it comes from Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 7. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 7, there's a whole sequence of chapters that tell us about Emmanuel. And what's the most famous thing said about Emmanuel, other than what we read here in Matthew 1? A child is born, a son is given. You know that line? Can you hear Handel's Messiah in your ear? And what's the next line? The, he shall be, you know all this, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And what does it say about Emmanuel? It says that the government shall be upon his shoulders. The government. 
That's the role of Emmanuel, to govern. You see, David was the savior of Israel. But that's not all he was. He became their king and governor. He did both, didn't he? It's one thing to save on any one day a nation. It's quite another to govern day after day after day. And David fulfilled both roles, and so would his heir, the Messiah. He would be both savior and restorer, and then he would proceed to govern, but govern in a way that no Israelite king had ever governed, in a way that would not fail. So uh, that seems to be the point of the two names. He is both deliverer, you see, and governor. He will be king uh, and do what even David, though he did both those roles, he failed, didn't he? He failed as governor, as many of his descendants did. So uh, let's look back at Isaiah then, and uh, let's kind of survey a little bit what happens here uh, to get some of the context of Emmanuel and the Isaiah, the famous Isaiah 7 uh, passage. So the first uh, five chapters of Isaiah, we'll be in Isaiah 6 is where we'll end up, but the first five chapters of Isaiah are lamenting the disobedience of Israel. How can they not know their own father in heaven when an ox at least most of the time obeys its master, said Isaiah. How is it that they can be so faithless and adulterous? And he described the parable of the vineyard, that God had spent all this time prepping the vineyard to produce fruit, and in the end, it was rotten from their disobedience. And so in Isaiah 6, in the, this is now the year that King Uzziah died, so we're now talking around, you know, this is, 100 years after David, 150 years after David. And uh, Israel has disobeyed for a century and a half. And in the year that Uzziah dies, Isaiah, Isaiah gets a vision. He sees the Lord. It says, high and lifted up. This is verse uh, 2. I saw the, or verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant was called the throne of God. God is enthroned above the cherubim. And there were two cherubim of gold on the top of the ark. That was God's throne. He sat there. It was his seat of government. And in that ark of the covenant, in his throne, was the law, the two tablets. Because this was his throne, and he was governing as king. Even, you remember Gideon? When they said, Gideon, we ought to make you king. And he said, oh no, we have... We, have you not looked at the tabernacle recently? That's the throne of God. We have a king already. I'm not going to be king. Now, he did name his son Abimelech, which in Hebrew, Abimelech, means my dad is king. Mm. Well, he said one thing, but does, we don't always do what we say, do we? So, um, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord governing high and lifted up, the very threshold of the temple shook because it could barely contain him, right? <laughs> 
Remember what Solomon said at the dedication of the temple? The heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house I've built. When Isaiah saw his vision of the Lord on his throne in that temple, the thresholds of the temple wobbled because that house could never contain God the King. And Isaiah says, what does he say in verse 5? Woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the true King. Israel, of course, had a king, didn't they? Judah had a king. The northern tribes had a king. But this was the king who would never fail and who, again, was at the wheel and never took his hands off the wheel. Um, so Isaiah is going to be sent, and he's told in verses 8 following, uh, you can see it in verse 10, that Israel is blind and Isaiah's preaching won't alter it. They will remain blind. And therefore, all the more worthy of the judgment that is about to fall on Israel first in the north and eventually on Judah. And God tells uh, Isaiah, look at verse 13, though a tenth remain in it, that is to say there will be a remnant. In fact, Isaiah is told to name his child, She'ar Jashub, which means a remnant will remain. And his child is a little sign to Israel that despite the coming judgment, there will be a remnant. It says in verse 13, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You know, we had a tree cut down, really big tree in our uh, neighborhood this week. Uh, not ours, thankfully. And uh, they had a crane. I guess it was crane works, I'll just guess. Uh, huge crane in, in the neighborhood. You know, not, you know, they can take a lot of trees down without a crane, but this one needed a crane. And it was shooting, you know, 150 feet up into the air and uh, lifting the high branches off the tree as they cut it. And what was left but a little stump at the end of the day. I don't put much hope in the stump, do you? You think it's got a great future? No. Just a little sprig here and there that will shoot up like a nuisance that you have to cut out once in a while. They didn't grind the stump. Uh, so what happens? Uh, Israel will be just a little stump, but at least there's a stump. There's something for the future. That's the point. So Isaiah 7 comes, the days of Ahaz. And what's happening in the days of Ahaz is that the northern tribes of Israel under the king Rezin, uh, and, uh, uh, excuse me, Rezin is the king of Syria. Pekah is the son of Israel, is the son of Remaliah, the northern king. So Pekah makes an alliance with the king to the north, Syria, so that they can band together. Why? So that they can face the real threat in the world, which is farther to the north in the Euphrates River Valley, the Assyrians, who are a beginning to be a massive empire. And Syria and northern Israel form an alliance, and then they attack Judah in order to force Judah to join them to face, they need their soldiers to face the Assyrians in the north. But as of yet, they have lost. They have not taken Judah. 
And so Ahaz gets the bright eye idea that he is going to form an alliance directly with Assyria in order to halt the advancement of Syria and northern Israel, which are immediately north. Go to the big boys way up north to help stop the little guys underneath them that are between you and the big boys. Now, this is a very naive plan, isn't it? As if the Assyrians, once they take the northern tribes of Israel and Syria, are going to just happily live outside the borders of Judah. But Ahaz decides he can do this, or this is the wise course of action. And so God sends Isaiah and his little son, a remnant will remain. And he approaches Ahaz, and he says, Ahaz, I have some news for you, some great news. The northern tribes uh, and, and Syria are not going to defeat Judah. God himself will preserve the throne of David. Isn't that great news? And Isaiah, Ahaz is thinking, uh, excuse me? You're saying I don't need to make an alliance with Assyria and these people are all just going to walk away and go home? And you can imagine Isaiah telling uh, Ahaz the story about the David, you know. Remember David, Ahaz, when he went against the Philistines and nobody gave Israel a chance and God delivered them. And Ahaz thought, the Philistines, the, the little Philistine colony off to the west, you mean? You're comparing them to the mighty, awesome Assyrian Empire to the north? Do you not live in the real world? <laughs> We're going to be wiped out, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, God has promised. And so it says in verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask us, oh, I should have read the verse before that. God said to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, you need to trust God. Believe him. What does belief actually mean? It means God has made a promise and you've accepted it. <laughs> That's what belief is. Belief is only meaningful as a response to something, right? That's what we mean by belief. We mean somebody has said something. And in response, we've accepted it as the truth and are prepared to act upon it. So God has made a promise, and Ahaz's job was to believe. And so God said, I get it, uh, you're doubtful. So ask a sign of the Lord your God, verse 10. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, oh, I, won't ask. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. You see Ahaz pretending he's religious all of a sudden. Oh, I would never test God. I would never doubt God. Of course he's doubting God. That's why he's forming his alliance with the Assyrians. It's not actually an altogether ridiculous plan until God has made a promise, right? And once God has promised, don't make the alliance, you don't need to do it, I'll deliver you myself. Just ask a sign. I'll give you a sign. In fact, I make it an exceptional sign, Ahaz. Make it as deep as hell. 
and as high as the heavens if you want to, I'll do it as a sign. What is God doing with Ahaz and the house of David? He's calling their bluff, isn't he? All their religion, they're just pretending it's all true. They don't really believe it. And God is calling his bluff. And when Ahaz refuses the sign, God says, you won't ask for a sign? I'll do a sign myself and I'll offer one. You know what this means? The sign that's coming is going to be exceptional. (laughs) What is the sign? The sign of the coming of the virgin birth. Take a virgin, will you? I'll produce a son out of her. And I myself will come in the person of that son. You shall call that child Emmanuel. God is right with us. Now, it's not clear that Isaiah or Ahaz would have fully grasped what all that meant. But we know now what it meant. It meant exactly what it said. Do you see what God was doing? Uh, You remember the first Israelite? I mean, not named Israel, but was uh, Abraham and Sarah, you know. God called them. And they grew old and their bodies could no longer produce a child. And God said, I'll raise up a child. I'll literally bring life out of death. And you laugh at it, we'll call him laughter, Isaac. You don't think I can do it? It's one thing to bring life out of death between two older people. It's another thing to bring life out of nothing. He won't even use a man now, you see. I don't need the Abrahams of the world, thank you very much. Remember what John the Baptist is going to say in chapter 3. God can raise up children from stones if he wants to. I'll take a virgin then with no man. Why is God doing that? To show Ahaz in the house of David that when Israel gets saved, it will be God alone who saves them. God with us. That's the point of the virgin birth. Only God can save us. And no man needs to be involved. Thank you very much. Well, actually, God becomes a man. But then that's a little different, isn't it? And then God himself saves them. Well, we've run out of time. What happens, of course, is when you get to chapter 11, we're still talking about Emmanuel, and God brings up that little stump again. He says, you remember that little stump I was talking about? <laughs> out of that stump is going, to be, is going to come a branch, which in Hebrew is Natsar, Nazareth. <laughs> and why does God say it that way? Because you wouldn't, as I said, you wouldn't give any hope to that stump. A little sprout sticking up isn't very threatening. Ooh, is the, are the neighbors going to worry that you're growing a new tree to block their lovely view? No. <laughs> it's just a little sprout on the stump. It's not threatening, not imposing. And Jesus would be born like that. 500 plus years after the fall of the house of David. Nobody, certainly not uh, uh, most people in the world, would have thought there was much to be threatened by. <laughs> out of the house of David. (laughs) That dynasty had long died away. But then word came (laughs) that there was a new birth. And you know that even Herod himself, 
got a little shaky in the knees at the prospect, the prospect that a real heir of David was born who might threaten his throne. Well, we'll pray and then talk about that story next week. Father, we thank you for your word and pray for your blessing on all of us that we would be firm in faith and trust you and trust your word above all things we ever hear from anyone, anywhere, at any time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.